Milton Mayberry. If I didn't have one, I thought maybe some of you would. Okay, let's pray for a little bit, and then we can get into our message for today and see what we have in God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful again that we can be here as a church today, and we want to be here to worship you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are here for the express purpose of raising you up and acknowledging you as Lord and Savior. We're not here just to socialize, although we are. We're not here just to get out of the house, although it's nice to get out of the house. We're not here just to drive around on a Sunday morning. But Father, we are here because it isn't where you are at. It's where we can congregate as a people. And we can worship as one to the one who saved us. So Father, we want to confess sins before you this morning that we have certainly not been perfect this week. And we never have in weeks past either. Whether those sins are mine or the sins of these people, Father, we ask in your gracious mercy that you would forgive us. We have sinned our entire life, and it would seem that you would be weary of this by now, but you are gracious and compassionate with your children, and for this we are grateful. So we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the comfort that you have provided people, for the healing that you have provided, and whether it be Wayne Van Werven or people like Doug Holt or Galen Kostler or others that we know of that have got COVID, Father, we ask that you would give a healing hand to them, that they'd be able to be going home and be restored whole. <clears throat> Father, we are, we are thankful that you have saved us, that you care about us, that you watch over us and protect us. And it's been close to a year now that COVID has been, been around in this nation, in this community, and you have spared everyone in this church. And for that, we are grateful. We want to be wise, we don't want to be cavalier, but we do want to lean on you heavily that you would protect us in, in this COVID season. Father, we would also ask that it would pass. We ask that you would lift this, this disease that has been a plague around our nation and the world. So Father, we ask that you'd continue to watch over your people, that you'd give us wise words that would be helpful to one another and words that would bring glory and honor to the Savior and point people to Jesus Christ, because that's ultimately what we need. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't want to open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, and it's been a, a few weeks since we were here, so if you're like me, you probably go, okay, now where were we again? And you try and pick up where we left off. So we had in chapter 8 of Acts, we had the martyr of Stephen, then we had the persecution of the church and the dispersion. And in chapter 9, Paul is going, or Saul at the time, he is going to be going from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's approximately 140 to 150 miles. It's going to take him several days. And then he is going to be arresting people in Damascus to be taking them back to Jerusalem so that they can be tried. Some will be in prison, some will be killed. And let's see if I can bring this up. Maybe I can. Can I do that, Steve? Okay. We have a map there, as is usual. You can kind of see where we're going with the map, and, and then we're going to be doing the PowerPoint. Yeah. Here's Jerusalem, obviously. This actually was plugged in, so it should be working. 
Well, no, that's another question. I didn't like that tone, but I'll take it. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Jerusalem is where they're at, and Paul is going to be, or Saul is going to be going over to Damascus. We see that he is uh, literally he is stopped by Jesus and says, "Who are you persecuting?" Okay, and then he's going to where we're going to be taking this up again is. Paul is going to be in Damascus right here, which is just kind of give you a little precursor since I have the map up here, is he, things don't go well in Damascus, and he escapes Damascus, he's going to go back to Jerusalem. Things don't go well in Jerusalem, he's going to go over to Caesarea. Caesarea, they say, you're going to get on a boat. You're going to get on a boat tonight. Get ready. And he's going to go up here to Tarshish. He stays up at Tarshish for seven to ten years. And then when we get into chapter ten of Acts, you're going to see that from Jerusalem, you're going to have Barnabas is going all the way up here to Antioch, and that's another message. But when he's in Antioch, he's also going to go over here to Tarshish, get Saul, and bring him back over to Antioch. And Antioch is the city where Christians were first called Christians. That's the city. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a teaser, Antioch was a cesspool. It was a cesspool of everything that you can think of, but that is where our Lord decided he wanted to start the first church was in that cesspool of Antioch, and it was a mess. But that's, a, that's another message. So, bringing us back to where we were, Stephen is martyred in Jerusalem. People flee this particular area, but but Saul wanted to cast a net large enough to catch everybody, so he goes even further than where people were fleeing because he wanted to catch as many as he could, and on the way, we know the, the Damascus story, and here we are. So, Paul is an independent sort, and you're going to be seeing this in your bulletin on the outline a little bit later on. He is an independent bugger. And we as Americans, we kind of, in our own way, we admire independence. To give you just a comparison, in 1776, in Independence Day, there was 2.5 million Americans. Today, there is around 331 million Americans. And I wouldn't say every single one of the Americans, but it is a pretty much an accepted trait of an American that you can be your own man, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't lean on anybody. You take care of yourself, you take care of your family, you do what is right. You don't depend on anyone, and when I leave this earth, I don't know the government a dime. They didn't help me, and I took care of myself. That is kind of an American way of looking at things. Now, I may have said it a little bit uh, more profound, than what some Americans might think, but we like, we being Americans, like people who just grab the bull by the horns, they, knew, they do what needs to be done, and they get on with it, and they don't whine. That's especially a World War I and II mentality. You just get her done and don't whine about it. That was Saul. He was an independent guy. There was another independent guy that we're probably all very familiar with, only he took this independence to an extreme. He was way on the extremes of independence, 
And you'll probably recognize his name as Timothy McVeigh. He was an outcast. He was an extremist. He despised the United States, and he hated the United States government. So the United States were like the people. He didn't like the people of the United States, and he hated the government. I mean, he hated them like crazy. Well, on April 19, 1995, we remember that he bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and he killed 168 people. And then they had him arrested, and there was meandering through the legal system, and they were doing whatever they were doing with the legal system. But eventually, they convicted him, and they were going to sentence him to death. And before he died, when they, when they, being the guards and those that were witnessing the death, when they were around him, there was what was called an eerie, calm exposure about Timothy McVeigh. He had no remorse. He had no regret. He was defiant. To the very end, he was proud, and he considered himself a martyr. That is what he considered himself. And when asked how he could maintain such a stoic resolve, he cited a poem by William Ernest Henley. And I would imagine all of you have a couple lines of this that you remember, but I'm going to quote the poem. If you could bring it up, Steve, that'd be great, and then I'll see if I can forward it. We can start with a couple of them here. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is primarily a spiritual problem. And I'm backing up just a bit. So Paul, he wanted things right now. And that is ours as Americans too. When we're independent, we want things right now. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. With America, we like to just, just get her done, just get it done as fast as you can, but we aren't necessarily deep people. Now I'm going to go over to the poem that Timothy McVeigh talked about. Invictus, before we even say Invictus means unconquerable or undefeatable. That's what Invictus means. And that was a poem he cited. It says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's what he quoted right before he went into eternity. That is an independent soul on steroids. Now, I'm not saying that any of us measure up to that type of independence, but there is a whole lot of things that enter our actions and our thought life that draws us away from the Savior and makes us a bit more independent than we really should because, you see, that kind of an independent spirit isn't mentioned anywhere in Scripture. 
It's not mentioned anywhere. Uh-oh. That's, that's your problem, Steve. You can bring... <laughs> okay, there it is. <clears throat> Saul. He was an independent guy. He was smart. He was gifted. He was upwardly mobile. And boy, was he stubborn. Some of those traits we kind of admire. But he learned dependence through circumstances that involved what the title of this message is, Lesser Known Saints. I'm going to read the passage now, and we'll see who those lesser known saints are. In Acts chapter 9, I'm going to be starting at the last part of verse 19. It reads, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Okay, hold it right there. It is believed that right after this verse, Saul went to Arabia for three years. We have other passages that we talked about a couple weeks ago, those passages, especially Galatians 1, verse 17. But he, it is believed he went to Arabia for three years. Now, three years has went by. He's back in Damascus, and it reads, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. The first lesser-known saint is right here. But his followers, right there, first lesser-known saint, his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. The second lesser-known is coming right up. When, the, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas, the second lesser-known, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And the third group of lesser-known saints are when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church in, throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in number, living in the fear of the Lord. There's the three lesser-known saints. And I can assure you, there's nothing that brings a little bit of humility to a really confident man than to be fully and completely dependent on somebody else. You see, Saul was, was brought up short on the Damascus Road, and it says in the scripture, they led him by the hand to, to the home of Judas on Straight Street. Then Ananias came, and he restored his vision, and then we, we just read that Saul did all the stuff that he did, and they lowered him down on a basket. Okay, do you understand... All these people were the ones that Saul came to find and arrest. 
and taken. Hopefully, some of them are going to be killed. Some will be put in prison. And they're the very ones that are saving his tail. They're the, I mean, how humiliating can this be? And it happens over and over and over. And you talk about whittling Saul down to size. He's a pretty independent guy. But this, uh, as, as the saying goes, this makes for great writing. This is a, makes a great storyline, but it's really hard living. It's really, really hard living to live it all out. God may use the strong and the stubborn and the independent individual in the world, but not long term. We see that over and over in Scripture. He doesn't use those people long term. He much prefers the humble, the broken, the bruised, or even the crushed. Those are the ones that God uses on a far more regular basis. So we see that Saul is independent, and he kind of moves towards dependency. We're going to see the first lesser-known saint is, I put his disciples, you could say his followers, is verse 25. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their names. We don't know where they're from. Even later, the letters that Saul or Paul wrote to the church, we don't know who these people are. But this is the way he started his public ministry. Have you ever been introduced by somebody, you go to an, uh, uh, some, some region, and this person is going to introduce, you don't know anybody. You don't know absolutely anybody. And they introduce you, and you are really dependent on the person. Sal and I just went to Yellowstone Park here a week or, week or two ago. I can't remember. It was recently. And uh, we, we had a great time, but we didn't know anything about the area. And there was a guy there by the name of Dave, he, and he lived there for years and years, 20 years, and he knew all about the area. So he led us around. He was really, really good. He was kind of like a guide. But you're fully dependent on this guy, and you go, don't lose Dave. Whatever you do, you're out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, like 300 miles on a snow machine in four days, and you're out there, and you go, don't lose Dave. Because if you lose Dave, you are in deep weeds. Even though we had a map, can he lead us around like it was nothing? But we went all over the place, and I'm thinking, hmm, it gives you just a little bit of humility when don't lose Dave, because he's the guy. I don't care if it was going to a restaurant to eat or where you could find a pharmacy or whether you're going to go to snow machining or what restaurants open way out. Just get a hold of Dave. This is the way it is with Saul, and he's not used to that. He's used to being in charge, and he's not in charge anymore. Imagine Saul five years earlier stooping down to get into a basket to be let out through an opening in the wall. I, I don't think he's even close to that. So the Lord is humbling him. He came to Damascus with pomp and pride. He was blinded. He was starved. He was met by Ananias, who he didn't know. He's brought to a group of disciples. Didn't know them either. He escapes to, to Arabia for a while. He comes back. It's all new to him. It's all brand new. But then we run into... Uh, some, more, some more people, Barnabas, he goes to, from Damascus to Jerusalem, and Barnabas is the type of guy, we don't know where he came from, 
We don't know what his home city was. We know very little about him except we know the meaning of his name, which is son of encouragement. And he's a guy that is always going to give somebody a second chance. He's looking to encourage other people. And we got people like that in this, in this audience. We got sons of encouragement in this audience. They're always looking to help somebody. And they are a real blessing to people. They really are. And this is no, no difference. But when, when you think of Saul coming to Jerusalem, that is the grad... The graduate, when he went to grad school, we call it grad school, that was Jerusalem. And Saul knew, he knew the alleyways, he knew the streets, he knew the businesses, he knew the people of any consequence. Anybody that was any consequence, Paul, Saul knew who they were. It'd be like somebody coming back to Bellingham because they graduated from Western Washington University. See, you know Railroad Avenue? Yeah, I You know Sea Home? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know where Hagen's is there in downtown Hagen's? Yeah, I know where that is. He knew all of these, these places, but yet they didn't want to talk to him. You'd think if he came back to Bellingham, they'd say, okay, we're going we're gonna to turn on the lights at Civic Field. We're going to give this, this Pharisee-turned-evangelist, we're going to give him the microphone. He's going to tell us our story, and nobody wants to show up because they don't know who this person is, and they don't trust him. That's his hometown. That's his, like his town. That's where he grew up in as a young adult. Nobody wants to talk to him. That would be a very humbling experience. Have you ever been stung by rejection? Sal and I had, I think it bothered her more than it bothered me. It was years ago, we, we had, what, it was a church that had a lot of small groups. And they'd take these eight, eight or nine people, and you'd have a small group, and they'd talk about the sermon, and they'd support and help one another, and they'd make meals for each other. Somebody got sick, and then we'd have this group over here. There was lots of groups. And it was, uh, we, we were invited to this particular group, and then about three days later, we got uninvited. <laughs> it didn't bother me so much, but she never forgot it. It's like, we just got disinvited. You know, we were part of the group, and now we're not part of the group anymore. But there are things that have happened to you in the past that you may not be proud of. And Sal and I became aware of this, this one uh, person, great, great guy. And he, he had something happen when he was in his early 20s. He got two drunk driving tickets. He got thrown in jail. He wrecked a really nice vehicle. And those events got him squared away with his Lord. And he doesn't shy away from bringing them up at all because they are what set his life on the rails and got him where he was supposed to go. And he doesn't, he'll talk about them as much as you want to talk about them because, because he says it's because of the grace of my, of my Savior Jesus Christ that he took me and the mess that I was in and this is where I am today by the grace of God. And he's not shy about it at all. You can have somebody like Saul, he didn't want to talk about this. He didn't want to talk about the basket experience. He didn't want to talk about having to be introduced by Barnabas. He doesn't want to talk about having to escape to Tarshish through Caesarea because they wanted to kill him again. He didn't want to talk about it because it makes him look bad. Those mileposts, those markers in your life are there for a reason, and it's because of the grace of God that he got you on the rails that you can be here today. So you don't want to forget those. You don't want to put those and hide them. You want to remember them because they're signposts that showed about the grace of God where he saw you and he got you where you needed to be. So don't, don't just ignore those. So anyway, again, 
Paul, when he was with Barnabas, he was put in a position where he had to be dependent on others. And the third lesser known brother was the brothers in verse 30. And they basically said, in a very short amount of verbiage in scripture, they said, you're going on a trip, a cruise in fact, packed light, you're leaving tonight. And they took him to Caesarea, and away he went, and he's gone for seven to ten years. We figure learning a trade, ten, tent making, in Tarsus. And we, we don't hear anything else about Saul during that particular time. And you know what is interesting? Is it says in verse 31 that after Saul went to Tarsus, it says the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. And I'm, I'm, I want to put it this way. The secret of the church, of this church or any other church, is not a gifted preacher. It's not a called individual, both then, in Scripture, and now, the secret to the blessing and health of any church is Almighty God. Period. It's the end of the story. It's not you, and it's certainly not me, or anyone else who may be tempted to think that they are indispensable to the cause. I think Saul had a little bit of that. He thought he was indispensable to the cause. Take me. I'm right here. I mean, don't you need me? And it says... We got you out of the picture, sent you to Tarsus for up to a decade, and the church grew and was strengthened. <laughs> That'd be hard to take. That would be hard to take. I have in your notes, people on pedestals. You know, if you found, if, if somebody, those somebodies of the world that can promote you, if they find that you're a terrific singer at 13, they want to get you a Grammy Award at 14. If some scout finds that you're a terrific basketball or football or baseball player when you're 16 years old or 17 years old, at 18 years old, they want to draft you, whether it be to a a fancy college, or they want to draft you into the pros and you make all kinds of money. And we know just how many people go downhill because of that. But also, when, it's, uh, when you see somebody in Bible school or seminary or in ministry and they go, man, he's a really good speaker, there is an inclination that we want to put them in leadership. Give them a pastorate. Let them be a pastor of a church. And that can be a train wreck. Because you see, God is interested in character that is forged over time. We see it over and over and over that God is interested in character that is forged over time. God is not particularly interested in having recent converts take ministry. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 talks just about that. Leaders must not be a recent convert. Let me give you some examples of where character is forged over time. In 1 Peter, I mean in 1 Kings verse 17, Elijah tells Ahab that there is going to be no rain on the land until Elijah says so. And Elijah goes to a brook. It's called the he goes to Chirup 
is where he goes. And he is there, and the ravens feed him meat and bread, and he drinks from the brook. And he's there for, they figure, a year. And then he went to live with a widow for a, a, a period of time even longer than that. And we see that he grew deeper and wiser and more dependent on God when he did this. We'll take another. When David was 17 years old, God said that he was going to be king of Israel. Well, was that 17-year-old David better than the self-willed Saul? Well, actually, David wasn't. David needed to be seasoned by life's lessons in solitude and obscurity, and that's exactly what he experienced for 13 years. At age 17, he said, you're going to be the king. And for 13 years, his character was forged. We see Abraham, or initially it was Abram, and he was going to be possessing the promised land. And we see all his travels and all that he did, and he went here and there, and eventually he had Jacob and Esau. That was a 25-year experience where he went all over the place forging his character, perfecting him over time. Moses was 40 years. For 40 years he was perfected and, and chiseled and polished until he was finally ready for ministry. Jesus himself was 30 years old before he began his ministry. So if there's anything that we want to say is, is God is interested in character that is formed and forged over time. So if God is making you wait, you're in good company. Remember this, if you are gifted, God and others will find you. Self-promotion is neither necessary or attractive. That's especially true in God's work. And you may be saying here, we'll say, you know, I don't, I don't have any aspiration of being a pastor or be in ministry, or I don't have any aspiration of doing that. That's fine. But there are promotions at work, and there are certainly standing with our kids and our grandkids, is being able to have that window of opportunity with our kids and our grandkids so that we can take it and we can be useful in that regard. So at the end of my notes, I have some lingering thoughts. Some lingering thoughts. Barnabas, we have the brothers. Everybody's up to speed. Yes. Okay. When God wants to develop our inner qualities, he's never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Always be faithful in the little things that you do, whether it's a daily report, whether it's an assignment, it's tasks at home, at work, or at school. This is how I want to phrase this. The test of my calling is not how well I do on Sunday. And it's not how well you do on Sunday that you're going to be sitting in the pews and you listen to me and you sing a few songs. The test of our calling is how carefully I cover the bases Monday through Saturday when there's nobody to check up on me when no one is looking. That is the test of my calling. <coughs> I'm going to tell you a story about a guy that I worked with for years and years, he just told me this this week. And, <coughs> excuse me, he was a young man. He has three other brothers. So there's four brothers, and they lived in Yakima for years and years and years. 
And they had a dad who was an engineer, and his dad was no nonsense. He was, he said he had a photographic memory, and he said when he told you to do something, he told you once. He didn't want to tell you twice. But he wanted to make sure those boys' hands were busy so they didn't get into trouble because, as young boys and kids would do, they had time in their hands and might get into trouble. So he announced to the four boys one summer, they just got done with school, summertime has started, he says, you know, boys, he says, I want you to come with me, we're going to go into the root cellar. Root cellar? What are we going to do in the root cellar? Well, the dad had figured the, the, the house furnace was compromised, so they needed a new system, and they needed a new water system in their house and they needed some room for it and he thought a great place to do to do this was in the root cellar and you boys are going to enlarge the root cellar you're going to dig it out by hand you're going to carry out buckets of dirt he says i figure it's going to take you all summer but you're going to do this because it needs to be done and he showed him how to do it and he left them to their devices and he, he went to work and he come back how you doing he says it took us weeks and weeks and weeks to get that done and they dug stairs down the root cellar and they widened the walls and they lowered the floor and then came the time says well dad we're going to show you how to how to mix concrete so they mix concrete by hand and they carry down he says you know how heavy a five gallon bucket of concrete is he says it took them days and days and days and they leveled that floor and they eventually got their furnace in there and they got the ductwork hooked up and they got this new water system and it was nice and spacious they put lighting in there he goes man that was a lot of work Says, I remember that this day. That was a ton of work. When God wants to develop our inequalities, he's never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. In fact, it could be something that's just a lot of hard work and just it's just not really that, that difficult. You just do the work. Well, guess what? The next year, no doubt his dad and a neighbor were talking. And the neighbor came over there, and I'm going, why did you get back home? But that wasn't the point. The neighbor came over. He says, I'd like to hire you boys. It's probably for very little money, the following year to dig a hole to put in a septic tank. Septic tank. It's probably about this deep. You know how big they are. They're about this big around. So the four boys, they got their shovels. They went, sure, we'll do it. They didn't have any choice. <laughs> they went out there, and they just dig a gigantic hole because that was a good thing to do because the dad wanted to develop some inter inner qualities in those young men that would forge their character for life. And you know what? It did. Because he's over 70 years old right now, and he remembers that like yesterday. He goes, man, that was a lot of work. He says, that was a good thing to do. He realized just what we could do if we put our minds to it. So he worked them, and he worked them hard. Secondly, God's ways are often, God's ways are often strange and simple. Whether it's letting someone escape in a basket or an introduction to a believer or learning how to make tents in Tarshish, God's ways are usually pretty simple in hindsight. Don't make carrying out God's will complicated. It isn't. God's will is just not that complicated. You follow him and you do your best and everything will fall in place just fine. And finally... Often God uses us in unusually sudden and surprising ways. It's as if God is saying this. He says, I know what I'm doing. I know where you are, and I know how to find you. You just stay ready as you carry out your job. Now, 
I'm going to end with a story. The story was first brought to my attention by Sal, and it was, it was on YouTube by Priscilla Schreier. And I listened to it, and I actually did some follow-up, and to the, best of my, to the best of my knowledge, this is a true story. Uh, I went and I tried researching it on the Internet, and I found some sites, and yeah, it seemed to be a, a true story. And I'm going to tie this all together with a story, and you're going to think this is kind of hanging out here, you know, how does this relate to, to what I'm talking about, but it does. It was in 1940. There was a, a guy by the name of Professor Edwin Orr, O-R-R, professor at Wheaton College, and he was taking a group of, maybe you've heard this story. Oh, you are, you're an alumni of Wheaton, okay. Professor Orr took a group of theology students on what we would call a field trip. Well, the field trip was to England, and the purpose of the field trip was to visit sites that were instrumental in revival, both in England and the rest of the world. And one of the places that they visited was called Epworth Rectory. It's a home. It was the home, the study place, the living place, place where he grew up of John Wesley. And John Wesley is one of the framers and the founders of the very theology that you and I base our faith on to this day. He was one of many, but he was one of the guys that was instrumental in forming the doctrine and the theology of the faith that what we know today. And it was also one of those guys who prayed for revival. He prayed long and hard for revival both in England and in America and in Africa and abroad. And if you care to check your history books, there has been revivals both before 1900 and after 1900. There was three in the United States. One was called the Great Awakening. They were such of such great magnitude in the United States that they made it into the history books. <clears throat> and they, it was said that in the Great Awakening, the skies opened up to such a degree that it was, that it was without a doubt the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of Americans, and they came by the droves knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, it was to this place that Professor Orr was going to be taking this group of theology students. And as the theology students came in, the first place that they went to was the kitchen. They went to the kitchen area. The professor says, this is where John Wesley, he, he made his, his lunch, he ate his dinner. This is where he lived his life. This is, this is where he, he spent time just having meals. And they appreciated the significance of that. And then the, the professor took him to the study of John Wesley. And the students were really enamored with that because the very books that John Wesley had studied were on the shelf. And some were open on the desk and you could see notes in the margins of the books. And there were notes that he had made that they tried to leave it in its original form. And the students were enamored with the history and the work that had been done in this particular study because he was one of the founders of the faith. And he formulated a lot of this. And right there in that study is where a lot of this took, took place. And the third place they were going to go was in the second floor of this rectory, and it was the most intimate and private place in the life of John Wesley. And as they were going up the stairs, the, the men and women in this group, they filed around the, 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 the bed, and it was rather narrow. And one of the students made the observation, he says, Professor, what are those marks on the carpet at the foot or at the, the head of the bed? And the professor said it is said that those marks were the very knee prints 
where John Wesley placed his knees on the carpet and he prayed for revival for England, for America, and for the world. And he didn't pray for just a few minutes or for 20 minutes. He prayed for hours and hours every day. He put his knees right in those spots. And that's where he prayed. And the, the students are, are soaking this in and they're going, hmm, okay. He says, it's time to go. We need to go to the next place. Let's all go to the bus. So they all leave. And the professor at the front of the bus, he counts the students and he's missing one student. So the professor goes back into the kitchen. Student's not there. He goes back into the study. Student's not there either. So the professor starts to climb the stairs. And as he gets to the top of the stairs, he sees the shoulder and the head of the student that had put his knees in the very spot where, those, where those, the fabric had been pushed right into to the wood. And he heard the student say, he says, Lord, do it again. Do it, do it again, Lord, and let me be part of it. Well, the professor went up to the student, put his hand on his shoulder, and said, son, it's time to leave. Everybody's on the bus. And then Billy Graham got up, and he joined the rest of the students on the bus. And then God did it again. Because we all know the ministry that Billy Graham had. My point in merging this with the passage is lesser known saints. I seriously doubt that any of you or me, are going to be a Billy Graham. We're not going to be a Saul or a Paul or a Peter. We're not going to be an Abraham, Isaac, or a Jacob. We're not going to be one of the, the big movers and shakers in the church. That's okay. There's a whole lot more lesser-known saints in the world than there are the prominent ones. And we need to lift up those people around us, whether they be in ministry that we have, Reverend Franklin Graham, there's a, there's a good example. To lift him up in prayer. To be, to be mindful that these people are carrying the torch of salvation. And the point I really want to drive home is, you know what? It doesn't really matter if Biden is our president or if Trump is our president. Our, our nation's in a mess. And you know why it's in a mess? Because we've kicked Jesus Christ out of everything in our government. And what this place needs is a revival where we would accept Jesus Christ as it was when we originally founded this nation and not squabble about laws or all the other stuff. And Sal and I have been reading, reading a book. It's called Harbinger II. And if there's anything that brought to the forefront is how we are so far away from the moorings that the United States originally had, we don't even know it. We are so far away from where we originally founded this nation and we squabble and we fight and we try to pass laws and now, now we have COVID and I honestly believe that COVID is a judgment from God and it, we're not done yet. That isn't meant to be doom and gloom. It's meant to be that if we reject God, then God will reject us. It's just as simple as that. And if there was ever a time that we wanted to get on our knees and pray for revival and pray for our, our leaders to have Jesus Christ Christ in their life, it's now. That's what this country needs. It isn't just more laws and this party wins and this party loses. That isn't going to help us a bit. That is what we need. And if there's ever anything that lesser known saints, you and I, what we can do is that, is what we can bombard the kingdom of heaven with our prayers and say, please, Lord, do it again. And please let us be part of it.
Father, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. And I've said this many times, that your word is life and is goodness to us. And we want to use it carefully. We want to rightly divide the word of truth, but we also want to have it practical in our lives. So, Father, we ask for our nation, for our leaders, that they would, in a profound sense, recognize you as Lord and Savior, that we would put you back in government, in schools, that your word would be, be proclaimed faithfully in churches and in homes, because that is exactly what this nation needs, far more than we need more laws or different politicians. So, Father, from this little church, we pray that you would hear our prayer, that you would heed what we are asking, because we want it to be for your good, for, for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, mm -hmm. amen. Please.